It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Good morning, good morning, and welcome back to Sunday Civics. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. I'm so happy you made it to class this morning, this wonderful Sunday morning, this last month of the year. This is the first Sunday of the last month of the year and we are making it. We are counting down. We are making it into 2024 and a year that will be full of a lot of political shenanigans, a lot of misinformation, disinformation. We know that is increased in a presidential election year. So we need to be vigilant and we need to plan. We need to plan our civic actions in 2024. And you need to stay right here at Sunday Civics because beginning the first Sunday in January, I am going to be taking everybody through the process of planning their civic engagement for 2024. So make sure you are tuned in here to Sunday Civics beginning the first Sunday of January and get your notebooks ready to take notes. So earlier this week was the Brooklyn NAACP membership meeting. And at this meeting, we had a local elected official come to our meeting to discuss a proposal, a plan that he had put out. So in New York City, we have what are called borough presidents. Our boroughs are like counties. And for those of you who have county executives, that's the most similar thing that I can compare a borough president to, except they don't have the their own budget. They're, they can't impose taxes or rule over committee rules. They have a number of different other responsibilities. But just for those of you who are outside New York City, I wanted to give you a context of what a borough president is, similar to a county executive. And it was interesting because as he came, and he's a member of the branch, and he came himself to present this plan, this new idea that he had. And he, part of the plan, which is called a comprehensive plan for Brooklyn, he talked about the city's inability to plan ahead that the city overall just responds to crisis after crisis, whether that's a crisis in housing, in healthcare, in environmental issues. And there might be plans in different agencies and things of that nature, but there is not this cohesive plan of planning out where we're going to put housing and making sure we have adequate supports, be it schools and parking and things of that nature, even planting trees, so that he put out a plan and said, we should be planning collectively and not in these isolated silos. And it was interesting because before he came and did his presentation, we were talking about the reparation legislation that has passed here in New York State and awaiting the governor's signature, which if you are a New York resident, I need you to call the governor and tell her to sign that bill before the end of the year. Don't worry, I'll have an action step for you for the end of the episode with the phone number so that you can actually do that. 
But I, I encouraged our members to think beyond what they think is possible or that or what other elected officials or people in charge tell you is possible and that they can participate in the their own governance by presenting ideas and legislation and policies that even if it's something that you believe folks will not support or that it's too much like right, as the old folks would say, that we should not limit ourselves in the possibility of how Black people should be paid reparations, be it a corporation, a state, or the federal government, that we can think beyond just giving by some people a check, although some people may require a check, so we're not putting, taking that off the table at all, but more or less thinking broadly being more imaginative on what we can do together. And that just because different systems have always worked this way doesn't mean that is the only way and that is the right way. That we should open our mind and open up bureaucratic processes to address the needs of people both now and in the future. And that's what led me to our conversation with our guest for this Sunday. The guests that we have this Sunday have not only written a book, but also given examples of how we can break the bureaucracy and the mold of education as it exists now and how we can bring people into the process and design education systems that work not only for our children, for our communities, but also our future workforce, our future community, and our future democracy. So when we come back from this break, <laughs> I am going to bring to the front of the class two individuals who took this on and have some real practical application on what happens when you bring community into the process of education when you give them the when you give them the say when the community takes their say and designs education systems that work best for their children for their community and our future so we'll discuss that and more when we come back here on sunday civics school boy and school girl come together who is the teacher i go let you know welcome back to sunday civics i'm Eljoy williams and we talk a lot about education here on sunday civics the purpose really is because education has a huge impact on our democracy overall. Everybody does the same. We need more civics or how to participate in governance and democracy in general in schools. And the whole purpose, I, reason I created the show is because there are adults who don't know how to engage, how basic things like conflict resolution that we should probably learn in school that impacts not only how we live our day-to-day -day lives, but also impacts our democracy. Because sometimes I'm watching news or even Congress, and I'm like, you have no conflict resolution skills. <laughs> you probably should have that if you're going to represent people in public office. But 
we have said for a number of times, and we've had plenty of guests on who've talked who've talked about our broken education system and broken for a number of different reasons, broken in how we fund it, broken in what we teach, broken in the structure and how we treat that every single child has to learn every single way, all the same way. I mean, so continuing in that conversation and making the connection again to our democracy, I have two guests to bring to the front of the class that wrote a book about this, The Open System, Redesigning Education and Reigniting Democracy. And the two distinguished guests are Landon Mascareñas and Donnie Tran. They're co-authors of this book and of this movement, because there's like a whole website and workbooks and everything <laughs> related to this. And so thank you to Landon. Landon and Donnie for joining us. Welcome to Sunday Civics. Thank you, Eljoy. Uh, we're thrilled to be here. Thanks for having us. So it's no coincidence that I talk about Sunday Civics as in the form of we're in a classroom. We're in this great big public classroom of learning civics, learning about our democracy, but more importantly, learning about participation in our democracy, um, using the everyday that is happening around us as really the lessons, right? As a, a way for people to engage. And I was you know, intrigued by the book and intrigued about the idea of how we can sort of break. There's a Dr. Carr who's been on the show and a friend of the whole movement about breaking, jailbreaking education um, and about changing the way in which not only we teach, but also engage folks. So because of that, I believe storytelling is a huge marker in terms of being able to tell the story. So I always ask my guests for their first time being in front of the Sunday Civics class, what's the story of your first civic action? So Donnie, I'm going to start with you. What a wonderful question. What a way to kick it off. So my my parents were Vietnamese refugees who came right after the war. My dad was a helicopter pilot and my first civic action was in my mom's womb uh, when they were protesting the way that the U.S. government was treating uh, boat migrants coming over from Vietnam. And uh, so that's kicked off a whole life of, of things that lead through um, the Gore v. Bush 2000 election protests when I was a freshman at the University of Georgia, all the way to marching in Atlanta in these past couple of years. And so thanks for that question. Mm -hmm. No problem. Uh, thanks for having us, Eljoy. And I love this question. And for me, I was, you know, my family's from Colorado uh, and I was in high school during the Columbine um, kind of massacre incident uh, in Littleton, Colorado at a nearby high school. And about a couple of weeks after uh, the Columbine shootings, Bill Clinton came to my high school actually to speak to the Columbine students. And around in response to his visit, there was a group of, I would say, very hateful protesters that emerged that travel around the country to just kind of follow, follow the president. And they protested outside of a church where all the victims were. And a group of my friends and I counter-protested them, uh, calling for love and healing and acceptance in our community and against their message of hate. And I remember that day almost as clear as a bell, Eljoy. It stands really clearly in my mind as one of those first moments where I realized that if I worked with other people to show up, um, that we could change the conversation. And it's a very powerful moment in my life. 
you know, that's related to, I'm watching all of the protests and everything that is happening before us as people are calling for ceasefire, calling for peace, but then also the counter protesters um, that are happening and seeing so many young people and, and looking and seeing, wow, this, you know, they'll be able to say 10 years from now, 20 years from now, this is the first time, you know, that they engage, whether it's on this issue of what's happening in Gaza, whether it's on climate change, right. um, as a number of young people are advocating um, for change in policy that way. And it makes me, you know, being with pride, <laughs> you know, that they, their immediate action is that I have to say something. I have to get out in the street. I have to um, make sure that my voice is heard and targeting the folks that they believe have decision-making power um, over that. Um, which brings me to uh, you know, I, I want you both to sort of dis detail what the 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 theory or the model that you are introducing are, but more importantly, the reason why it intrigued me is that you make this connection between education and democracy. Can both of you not only um, talk about what the, you know, the theory you, that you're advocating is, but then also talk about that connection between education and democracy? Well, you know, for centuries, I mean, since the beginning of our country, there's a lot of writers and thinkers that have said that education is the cornerstone of our democracy. Whether you're talking about some of our uh, kind of founders, uh, the brothers and sisters uh, that founded our, uh, those that had access to power, those that didn't have access to power, many people saw education as a way to build out a more perfect democracy. And what we really wanted to investigate and go into learning, both Donnie and I, as we were friends together back in graduate school and found ourselves working on similar issues around the country, was why did some of the most exciting interesting and powerful new innovations education collapse under their own weight because they did not have the legitimacy and support from the communities they served. And we kept seeing this happen over and over and over again, Eljoy. Um, and so we brought together folks from the community organizing space, the school district leadership space, the philanthropic space together to say, what are we all doing together? And the kind of overall concept that really began to emerge was that we're all opening up systems, opening up education systems to the communities they serve. And that through that co-creation and co-production, we are bringing new voices into the system to build legitimacy and trust for potential opportunities to reimagine that system. And that through that act, there's an incredibly powerful democratic reverberation that occurs inside of a local community, inside of a system. And that while we believe this is fundamental to education, we believe we stand in an inflection moment where public systems overall need to be redesigned with the communities they served. And I'll just add to that, that I think what we've seen over and over again is a lack of trust uh, and a lack of acknowledgement that if you want true transformation, you have to get the commitment of people and communities. And if you want commitment, you have to get their consent. And if you want consent, you have to really invest in co-creation with them because uh, they have to be a part of crafting and building the solution before they will they'll give their agreement and give their true commitment. Yeah. You know, reading this, it made me think of, obviously coming from my culture and background, made me think of the early schools created after emancipation, mm -hmm. which were 
founded and engaged not only by uh, people who were formerly enslaved who could not possibly read on their own, but knew that education and sort of learning how to read, how to uh, do arithmetic, how to navigate the new system that they now had rights in was important. And it was a collaborative effort, right? Communities that created these institutions poured into it, provided the resources and support. And so that buy-in that you talk about, right? There's that shared understanding that education is important, but then also it was open to not only children, but to the community as a whole. And it was community that came together to decide, you know, what time we're going to meet. Well, we still have to work. So, you know, we're going to do it around, you know, these months and these times because we need people, right? So there was this uh, communal understanding, but also communal thing of when is the right time, how many hours, who's going to do what, there, there was that, right? And then fast forward to even through Jim Crow, right, creating those institutions, whether it's in small schoolhouses and churches, but even to fast forward to, you know, degreed institutions, right? There is that shared communal understanding, and it was also open to all. And, you know, for a number of parents and community in general, you know, school is where you send people, not where you also engage and participate in. And just, you know, the bar- the the basic barriers, we talk about this in New York City public schools, um, where I grew up in a chance where the school was always open. I was there on a weekend, you know, during the summer. But now there is that barrier. You need permission. You can't just you know, go in and engage and be a, per, a a participant. People, there's a police officer stopping you, right, and, and at the door. So it doesn't have that same openness um, and that the community is welcome and engaged unless you have school officials that are deliberately trying to, to do that feeling. So there has been this change over time that school is not community space and open, but only for this very structured you know, and determine on who has access. How how did that become that way? How did the system become that way? Well, I think you, you bring up a really amazing point, Eljoy, about the history of liberatory movements in education and liberatory movements in general have always given rise to learning environments that are meant to be more deeply responsive to the people and communities that they're in. Uh, from freedom schools to the schools that came up just after emancipation, HBCUs, those were all designed to be responsive in a way that the traditional system just wasn't ready to be. And why I think you're absolutely right to highlight the fact that there's not a sense of reciprocity between communities and schools as they're currently structured. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that we have a very expert-driven system right now. Like there are people with expertise. They design the system. You as a non-expert, as a family member, as a student, you come into the expert-driven system and you, you should be lucky. Now you should feel lucky to, to be able to be involved in that. And that's really an impoverished view of the expertise that lives in communities, that lives in families, in young people. Uh, It's not tapping in to all of the strength, insight, wisdom, and expertise that they do bring. Uh, And that's really what the open system is about. How do we create a system that recognizes all of that wisdom and insight 
that lives in the communities all around us and engage it in deeper co-creation so that we can better serve all the young people and families that we're meant to. And, and I really think that's, you really got to the heart of it all. Yeah. Landon, now I want to, for, for, there are folks listening, right? You talk about there are people who are experts in education. It's a lot of them that listen to this show, right? And so, you know, I, I'm going to give your disclaimer for you, Donnie. It's just like, we're not saying that those of you with expertise don't know, um, but there's an old saying in my family. It's just like, you just smart, you're so smart, you're so dumb, right? <laughs> that you, because you're so smart and leaning in on your expertise, you're not paying attention or not aware aware of what else is happening around you. My grandmother used to say that to me. I don't know how somebody could be so smart <laughs> and so stupid at the same time. <laughs> Landon, talk about, if you will, what does the open system look like practically? So for those who are listening, who are in the system and are intrigued by this, what are you suggesting that they do differently? Or what does the system look like? The... Uh, first off, I would love to meet your grandmother. She's still around with us. LJ. No, unfortunately not. But uh, yeah, but yeah, she used to say, and, and well, thank you for bringing me. Who, by the way, founded a Bible college and would, you know, her, her oh, wow. thing was for you to be stupid. She's like, can you just, <laughs> so that, that was her kryptonite is just encountering stupid people, but go on. Well, you know, it's funny you say that too, because when I was in college debate, we used to always joke that the thing that we would, the, the, the easiest way to know that we were going to lose a round is if we actually knew something about the topic. But sometimes our expertise and our confidence in the, to in, the, in the content actually obscures our ability to communicate it well, to actually persuade people of it, because we feel so passionate about it. It actually is a block for us with other people. Um, and so it's interesting you say that. Um, and thank you for bringing your grandmother into the space. You know, I, be, I began my teaching career on the Navajo Nation in New Mexico, and I got to learn from a lot of incredible indigenous leaders about what it meant to build sovereignty and self-determination in education systems. And I learned from some pretty incredible leaders like Kara Bob Roth and uh, Robert Cook, who helped me understand what, what it meant to co-create a native vision for a school in the context of a charter school, a district school, a bureau school. And I learned pretty early on that there was something really powerful in the idea of co-creation. And that doesn't say, and this is the difference between the closed versus open system. You know, the, the, the closed system says, there's only a certain group of people who can make this decision. The open system says, actually, we need everyone's wisdom and expertise at the table to build it. It means that your expertise still matters tremendously and is instrumental and consequential to help us figure out how we do it. But yet it can't be the only thing. We need the wisdom of elders, parents, students, business, community members to actually build the school that will serve our entire community. And I think that's a really important distinction. It's not that leadership doesn't matter or expertise doesn't matter, but it is one component of a larger tapestry or framework. And that's what we do in the book, Eljoy. What we do is we walk people through six chapters, six principles, multiple case studies of examples of people showing open leadership, principle one. Principle two, knowing their community. Principle three, designing spaces that break through the closed system. Um, and then modeling creative democracy and rejecting scarcity to build abundance in systems. And then expanding the opportunity for other people and other projects and other initiatives and other systems to become more open. This is all work we've seen done 
um, in rural, urban, suburban context. We've seen it done in Chicago. We've seen it done in rural Colorado, in Georgia, in Kentucky. We know that there are leaders everywhere out there who are seeking a more open, just, and inclusive world. And the book stands as a testament to their energy and expertise and the opportunity we get to build it together. Right. So we're talking with Landon Mascareñas and Donnie Tran. They are the co-authors of the book, The Open System, Redesigning Education and Reigniting Democracy. Donnie, I wanted to, in talking about that, and one of the principles about um, opening up and letting um, not just the quote-unquote experts make the decisions, is also about having the people who are being taught involved in the process as well. And I get some of my greatest insight from young people and even my own children. I have a very opinionated eight-year-old um, who, when you're trying to teach her something, she will stop you. Even my husband, who is a public school, high school teacher, she will stop and she's like, daddy, you need to do it this way because that's how, you know, that's how we're going to learn, right? And so talk about that perspective in terms of the uh, openness and making sure that there is not just, you know, one entity that has, um, should have input, but also the people who are learning as well, I think, which is valuable and important because it teaches something to them while also um, giving insight to those who are teaching. Absolutely. I have a I have a 10 and a 12 year old who have plenty of opinions about how they should learn and how they should run their lives. And, and in fact, they have a lot of opinions about how I should run my life. Yep. Uh, yep. And so yep. yeah. I, like, I like to think that I'm training some some very active citizens. And that's really at the heart of it. You know, we, if we want a really robust democracy, which I think is just at the core of, of this conversation, Eljoy, it then we have to model it, right? And we have to actually apprentice our young people in the practice of active collaboration and co-creation and agency within the system. Uh, right now, you know, if you look at most classrooms and most schools, their, their sort of fundamental organizing principle is coercion. I'm, I'm gonna make you do these things. It's everything is eating broccoli, right? It's do it because it's good for you. And we never really structure systems to explore what do young people want to learn? What are they interested in? How do they want to learn it? And therefore we are really showing them that the schools and institutions that are around them are not designed to be responsive to them. Yeah. And they are there to fit them into a box. Yeah. And so if we want something different, then we have to actually teach principals and district leaders how to engage them as co-creators. And we see great examples of that in places like Burlington, Vermont, in Boulder, Colorado, where school entire school systems are engaging young people in the co-design of, of the system that they, that they learn in. Hmm. Landon, one of the principles that I think is going to be really great for my kids and her teacher actually reinforces that when they are trying to decide if they need to, you know, Donnie, you know this at, at the age of our kids, teaching them when it's appropriate to say things and not. <laughs> but, you know, her lesson in her head that her teacher repeats 
is it kind? Is it true? Is it necessary? And I'm like, oh my God, I wish mm. so many people on social media <laughs> like have that in their head, <laughs> you know, of that mantra is just like, before I press send, is it kind? Is it true? Is it necessary in this, in this moment? But that's an example, right? Those are case studies. And Donnie mentioned um, some of the cities and other systems that are um, case studies of the open system. What are some other examples of where elements of the open system have been successfully implemented? Well, Eljo, I just think with that one rule, you could completely obliterate Twitter and <laughs> over the weekend, probably. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which might actually solve our d- democratic problem yes. we actually have globally. I'm, I'm, so, I'm, I'm really hoping there's, stays with that. For the there's a lot life. there. It seems like a reasonable first <laughs> Honestly, it's probably the it's, it's the most elegant way forward, I think. Um, no, you know, the thing that we really, one of the reasons, and the great, the great incredible aspects of writing this book, El Joy, was meeting so many people and talking to so many people from all over the country who are doing this work in really, really exciting ways. You know, I've had the privilege of working with a lot of rural communities all over Colorado these past five years in something called the Homegrown Talent Initiative. And, you know, that was an initiative to try to really bring workforce and workforce development opportunities in small rural communities through education, like internships, apprenticeships, pathways, stuff that we know really makes a huge difference, very popular in education right now. It would have been very easy for us to make that just a technocratic, let's build this, bolt that on and go on our merry way project. Instead, we said, let's actually make this about opening systems up. Let's actually bring business, community, uh, stakeholders to the table to design all of this together. And those eight communities are now joined by nearly 60 other communities all over Colorado who are not doing this work at the local level to bring business and communities in to design the future of their education systems, but now working at the regional level. So we have now a dozen districts working together in Northeast Colorado saying, hey, we're going to build a healthcare pathway, but what kind of healthcare pathway? What is our business needs? What do our students want? What do our students want to see from healthcare jobs in the future for their community? These are just different questions people are asking about designing systems. And you know, you can imagine a way where we would do that, where we wouldn't ask all those questions, where we wouldn't bring all those people to the table. There's a really incredible project that just came through in Chicago where the awesome organization Kids for Chicago worked with the Chicago public school systems and built a very radically inclusive group of stakeholders to reimagine their accountability and assessment system. You know, that's the third rail of education, Eldra. You're not you're not supposed to take that on, let alone with that many community members. What Donnie's done in Kentucky. I mean, these are all examples that people would say, Oh, you can't do it, it's too slow, it's too many voices, it's too many people, da 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 da. And yet in each of those cases, we are watching leaders, open leaders, openers, we call them in the book, rejecting the tropes about community-driven design and showing that it can be strategic, it can be urgent, it can be impactful, and it can move systems forward and ignite that spark for democracy that we're talking about in this conversation. Mm. And I mean, people are deeply entrenched in the system as it is now. Like we've built systems upon systems upon bureaucracy in terms of education, right? It's gone from, you know, far from, you know, a school teacher in the front in a small one room 
you know, space of teaching to now that teacher needs probably 12 other people of bureaucracy in order for her to do her job, right? Um, What are some other systematic barriers that exist to having this change, right? Because like anything, and it's not just education, although it's number one prime example, people would argue also, you know, corporate work is another example where we've just built systems on top of systems um, and not focus so much on what's actually happening, you know, between that teacher and that student. Um, What are the other barriers that exist uh, to creating this more, inclusive education system. Yeah, I mean, the way we start in the book, which has been just so deeply instructive to me as a, as a leader in this kind of work, is you actually have to look inside first. Really open leadership starts with the person who wants to take up this challenge. And the, for one of the first questions we ask is, are you actually open to going where the community might need to go? Mm-hmm. Or do you really think that you have the best answer already? If you really think you have the best answer already, you need to do a little bit of soul searching and start asking yourself whether or not you're part of the issue. Are you the one who is not particularly responsive or respectful of of the expertise that might live around you? Uh, And are you willing to put that into right relationship with your expertise. I appreciate you caveating me earlier, Eljoy, uh, that, that yes, people have expertise and they should bring it to the table and everybody deserves that chance, including families. But structurally, when we look around at the systems, uh, one of the biggest barriers is actually the sense of urgency that kind of drives everything and makes us feel like we never have the time to do deep community uh, empowerment and co-creation. It's always you know, deadlines and, and usually externally imposed or sometimes internally imposed that really make us so that we we have to force ourselves into these rapid decisions and, and can't deliberate and co-create with, with the people around us. And then, you know, Landon, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the abundance concept too, and the, and the way that scarcity can sort of short circuit a lot of open systems work. You know, it's a really interesting uh, thing that we keep getting asked about, you know, is this a left concept? Is this a right concept? And, and fundamentally, we think that the thing, the, the greatest test of whether people are responding to the idea, Eljoy, is whether people believe democracy could um, And we think that actually is a kind of bigger idea than left and right right now. And I think we probably have a big conversation about where that's breaking down on either side right now, or what part of that is breaking down more on one or the other. We probably have a lot of agreement, I imagine, on some of those questions. But fundamentally, um, we have been surprised by the folks uh, that maybe we would naturally consider allies who are saying, it's too, we have, there's too much urgency right now to solve this problem for kids or for families. And uh, they have a scarcity of, of idea about the amount of time and resources we have. So they say, we just got to get it done. We don't have time to ask for other people's input into how to solve this. We know how it works. We know how to do it. And I think that fundamentally, that's a flawed assumption. And we have to move to an abundance uh, vision for not only our society, but in democracy and in our schools, that we definitely have more than enough time. We definitely have more than enough resources and energy. The question is how we deploy them. The question is how we decide to spend time and energy and on what do we spend time and energy around. And fundamentally, if we believe democracy is the path forward and we believe this idea that we have to take on the calcified isms, whether it's sexism, classism, racism, 
settler colonialism that are baked into too many of our public systems, that's not going to be undone with a scarcity mindset and with a small group of people saying and deciding what it's supposed to look like. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I also think that to throw in one thing that listening to Landon made me think about is we have to also admit that the way that we currently structure task forces in public education is fundamentally broken. It's something that we talk about. Uh, they don't, they, they either are too short, like a one-time shot in the dark, let's hear from a small group of people, uh, or, and then go and, and solve the problem in, in a small room somewhere, or they last forever and they're not really clear about the whole purpose and what's actually on the table. And are we clear about what decision or what thing is open to co-creation? And and we we think that there's fundamentally have had to we have to rethink that, and we outline that you know at some length in the book too. So I want to get personal for a moment because you're both educators, in you know working on it. Working on any book is hard, <laughs> but certainly working on a book is hard. But how has working on this influenced your own perspectives on your industry, on, you know, your view of education and democracy? Are there any particular moments or experiences when, you know, you were doing the research or the collection or the conversations between the both of you that reshaped your views or reaffirmed what you believed? You know, there's a couple things that come to mind when you ask that question, which I love that question. You know, we used to do a similar prompt in graduate school when Don and I met where it's like, I used to think and now I think. Ah. Um, and I think that like, I love this idea of, of going on the learning journey as educators, we have to always be in that space, I think. Um, and we have to accept the fallibility of our beliefs and assumptions. And I think there's a few things that really come to mind. One, uh, that the, one of the greatest gifts of this book has been meeting people now since the books come out, people who we've never known ever in our lives, Eljoy, who are, are like yourself, who are reading the book and something in the book is resonating with them. And And there's a lot of educators who have come up to us and said, I have tried to live like this. I didn't have language for it, but now reading your book, I have language for it. And that was such a huge goal of the book, Eljoy, was to actually build a shared discipline and shared language around a bunch of things that we we knew people were doing and aspiring to think through, but that wasn't really put into language and structure yet. And so that was our attempt, you know, and we'll leave that at that. And the second thing is, you know, through working with Donnie on the book and the variety of other people that we co-created with, the residents that helped us shape the principles, we really tried to lean into the concepts in the actual building of the book. You know, how do we do it together? How do we work on it together? How is it an inclusive process in the book? And there are areas where I think we really shine in that, the areas where that we could have done more work probably. And I just think it's uh, it was very important for us to like lean into that, and it wasn't just what Landon thought or Donnie thought. It was actually you. We in the book, you hear a lot of other people's voices, and you get to learn from a lot of other really brilliant people, and that was that was really important for us. And I think that's a key aspect that we tried to really lean into. I think that what I discovered about working or from working with my dear friend Landon here mm-hmm. is that we are both fundamentally institutionalists and optimists like we it's it's a hard thing to say these days because faith in public institutions is kind of this crazy low and yet both of us sort of 
operate in this faith that institutions can be remade and the way they work can shift. And I, I sometimes do have like moments of deep doubt about that, but I think the work that we've seen proceed in places like Kentucky, where like we're working at its higher state level and the habits of the state agency are actually shifting. Like the way they're relating to their communities is changing. The ways in which they are engaging young people are changing. And that gives me hope. It gives me hope that some, in, if we just do it right and really push and really guide and support each other, uh, then the institutions really can sort of adapt to this new moment. And it feels like a moment of real promise. Mm. You know, one of the things of um, <clears throat> education that I find that's really prohibitive is that like anything, one, it's next to healthcare, the cost of education is the highest in terms of state and, and cities. And it's also obviously a very political, um, engaging conversation, right? I mean, you can chart any um, governor's race, any mayor's race, city council, all of these entities, school board elections, right? It's what do we do about this system? And so because of that, it is always subject to a lot of political intervention and change in course, right? Um, so you can have something and folks are like, yeah, we got a someone who understands and we're going this way. And then somebody else gets elected and they're like, well, actually, we're going to go left now. <laughs> you know, and you're just like, but, but this is work. <sighs> all right. <laughs> you know, and now we have to, you know, pack up all of the stuff and move over here. And by the time you get resettled and get everything ready for over here, then someone else gets elected or someone over that person. And they're just like, well, actually, stop where you are. We're going to go backwards now. And you're going to do it while you're hopping and blindfolded. So, you know, like, it changes so frequently. How do you implement something like this? in that kind of environment where people who may not be educators may not know this, right? They're using it as a, you know, a, a political football or, you know, what they envision something should look like. How does a system operate in that, in that space? Yeah. You know, I keep on talking about Kentucky and so I hope you forgive me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to buy a house there sometime soon. But so the previous commissioner, dear friend, incredible leader named Jason Glass, he kicked off open systems work across the state by doing empathy interviews with thousands of people. He empowered young people to do these empathy interviews. So many people participated. And then we created this coalition uh, that also engaged in this like, co-creation process for the future of education in the Commonwealth. After that, he was able to say, this is not my vision this is the vision of Kentuckians for Kentuckians. And, and he unfortunately got, he became the political football, Eljoy. And it, you could read about it online, but he left the role. But because he had co-created it with so many people across Kentucky, they really did hold on to it. And we had just met a couple weeks ago for, with a statewide coalition. And they said, you know what? This is still the work. The board chair, board vice chair, the new interim commissioner, they said this work that began with all of that deep community built building 
is still the direction of the department. And it, so it became something that was actually more durable than just one person because of that co-creation process and how many people really began to own it because they saw themselves in it, because they were part of it. Uh, and I think that's the real promise of open systems work, um, that it can be durable because it's, it's so co-created. Yep. I think that I love what Donnie uh, just said. I think that we have to, we talked about this in the last chapter of the book, Eljoy, but we have to really take a real look at the way that we are bringing democracy into education structurally too. So for example, in most you know states around the country, we elect school board members like we just did in Colorado on off-year cycles, um, where 10 to 15% of our voting population. Vote. And why is that the case? And research suggests that if we moved those school board elections to on even years, um, whether it's a midterm or a presidential year, we would have, you know, significantly multiplier effect, more turnout. We probably would line up the cycles more effectively with other political leadership choices. And we wouldn't have this seesaw, whipsaw effect happening so much in our system. You know, some of these things we have to interrogate. People say, well, we shouldn't elect school board members because, you know, they're not functional. And I say, well, it's how we elect them. You know, I'm a big proponent of ranked choice voting public financing of elections. You know, you could imagine a world where we bring some of those structures and systems, things that we know create better governance, better campaigning, better uh, outcomes democratically into our education system. Now, if we did that, my sense is that we'd have a very different impact in the way that we'd be building coalitions for the future. Yeah. Well, I want to thank the both of you um, for writing the book, for introducing the principles and the conversation, certainly opening uh, us up to the different examples of places that, you know, just personally, I wouldn't know about Kentucky, <laughs> right? I read a lot of newspapers all across the country, but Kentucky, I don't read much about Kentucky. So, um, you know, hearing those examples um, are really important not only from Kentucky, but Chicago, to see that there are, and I, I'm assuming that you are very deliberate in bringing examples that were in diverse areas and diverse systems, right? So that it's, you know, one of the critiques isn't, well, this is great in Vermont and Colorado and Kentucky, but what about, you know, Chicago, New York, and, you know, sort of other places like that. So I appreciate that diversity in the examples of how this can work. And more importantly, in stating that it doesn't have to work the same way in every place is that that is the point right is that it is an open system for the community themselves to be involved in the process and help to co-create something that works for that community um and i think that's really important um work so thank you um thanks to both of you for that and you know we have had a wonderful conversation Again, with Landon and Donnie, the authors of The Open System, Redesigning Education and Reigniting Democracy, will be back on Sunday Civics. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? Of me. How could you see? Thank you so much. This is El Joy here at Sunday Civics. I want to thank each and every one of you for making it to class this morning. I hope today's conversation inspired you to think beyond the boxes that we have all been accustomed to, not only as it pertains to our education system, but 
transfer that same thing into how our communities are run in general, how trash is done, how the community board operates, how obviously there may be instances where in which things that need to be changed have to be changed be, with by bylaws or constitution. However, we should think about not trying to fit things in a box and therefore fit what our community needs and deserves into a box. But we should think about the needs first and think about how community can be involved and engaged in the process and then design something that meets that need, right? And a number of you probably have similar examples of trying to conform to a bureaucratic system that just doesn't serve you well. And if you are part of a group of people, at least here in the United States, that have been historically marginalized, you know that there are systems that weren't designed for us in the first place. And you continue trying to create layers upon layers in order to fit people into a system that does not wasn't meant for them to be in the process at all. And so it's okay to break it. It's okay to break stuff that no longer serves your need. Just what what is the, when you're cleaning out your closet or you're doing something and you're just like, all right, it's okay to get rid of this table that does not fit in my house. It's too large or it's too small. My family's bigger, it's smaller. We make those decisions all the time. So why can't we make those same decisions about our own governance, right? We can do that. We can open up the possibilities. And I am always encouraging, always encouraging us to dream bigger and not put limitations on ourselves and what we should be providing for our communities. I'm someone who firmly believes in that. I believe that we can come together and provide basic necessities and basic needs as a society. It's part of the, one of the things that makes me more liberal, what makes me more left-leaning to say, let's put all our money in a pot and make sure people can eat and make sure people have proper education and proper health care. I'm fine with putting in more money so that it can serve those basic needs. That's just me, though. That's just me. I'm not putting my ideals and my political politics on you. I'm saying that we should take the limits off. Hey, hey, church people, (laughs) take the limits off of what the possibility is and make sure, again, it also comes back to us being actively engaged and community being engaged in the process overall. So with that, I want to thank each and every one of you again for making it to class here on Sunday Civics. And as promised, for those of you who are in the state of New York, I have an urgent call to action for you. Remember I mentioned the legislation that passed back in June in the state legislature that would establish a commission on reparations here in New York State. We are still waiting for Governor Hochul to sign that bill. So I hope you still have your pen and paper out. You can call the governor's office at 518-474-8390. Again, that's 518-474-8390. 
and demand Governor Hochul sign the Reparations Commission Bill. That's it. Here's your script. Hi, my name is Eljoy Williams, and I am calling to strongly urge, in fact, I'm calling to demand that Governor Hochul sign the Reparations Commission Bill. Simple as that. We'll be back next Sunday with more Sunday Civics. And as I mentioned, oh, the next couple of episodes, you better have your notepad, your post-it note, or maybe your notes app open and save some notes because we are officially in planning mode. Take care. It's cool.